house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. Take you out for a cup of coffee. Strong eye contact, implied intimacy. You're good. So what does this mean? Actually, this is me being nice. You have beautiful eyes. That's it? That's the best you got? This isn't about connection for you. This isn't even about sex for you. This is about finding an hour or two of relief from the pain of being you. And that's fine with me because all I want is the exact same thing. Show me, show me, show me how you do that trick. Why don't you have a boyfriend? Let's just keep it simple. I can do that. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast scheming to kill our lookalike siblings so we can bang Matt Damon with a clean conscience. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Chris File, and I'm here as always with some uh, strategically placed pillows and my co-host, Joe Reed. Boner joke, boner joke, boner joke. Like, uh, we'll, we'll come back in post and we'll... Uh... We'll Not even just like boner joke, but like this is my arm covering my nudity. <laughs> there is so much like barely covered nudity. I mean, we'll get into it. Like the nudity in this movie is third build essentially, and it already yeah. sounds like you have a problem with this. But yes, we will get into it. Like I'm kind of like into like what this movie is trying to go for. Yeah, I think to, we like, disagree on this movie fairly considerably and that should be fun which we've talked about which is fine but we but, brought uh, in a tiebreaker to <laughs> we have brought in a tiebreaker once again we have a lovely guest joining us he is a senior writer for vulture.com it's nate jones everyone yay Hello. thank you for having me welcome we are so excited to have you um so whenever we have a guest we kind of like to just go over your like oscar history what um, first made you interested in the Oscars? Like, what drew you to the Oscars initially? I mean, I was always sort of a movie person when I was a kid. I used to get those Roger Ebert movie yearbooks for Christmas every year and just read them cover to cover. Totally, they yeah. some Big, giant things. You know, and so I think, I think the first Oscars that I was sort of aware of the Oscars as a thing, I think it was like the 1998 Oscars because... I had been allowed to see Shakespeare in Love, but I was not allowed to see Saving Private Ryan. Ah, okay. And so I kind of, when it when Shakespeare in Love won, I kind of had a little bit of, I don't know, vindication or something. I don't know. It felt, it, that was sort of the, the, the first time I was sort of living vicariously through this competition <laughs> that you have no effect on. That was a hugely kind of pivotal year, too, in terms yeah. of like Miramax becoming what, Miramax would be known for for the next like decade and then it kind of kicked off their battle with DreamWorks and I feel like the lat the the decade of Oscars following that year became kind of a reaction to that year's Oscars. It was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And then in in recent years uh, this is slightly embarrassing, but I've been in an Oscar season fantasy league, and so that has sort of oh, I love added it. new layers of competition, and you find yourself rooting for very, you know, I, I almost won the league when Suicide Squad won that Best Makeup Oscar. Wow, <laughs> you, you find yourself rooting or not rooting, yep. but then I, I lost the league this year when 
first man one visual effects, and so that sort of killed my team. Wait, who was your team oh, this dang. year? So there's the interesting thing about this league, my friend made it up, there are different positions, and so the different scoring is based on the position. So you have... If you can I if you want me to go Oh please I I desperately want to hear please. about this. Please. Yeah, okay. yeah, like so, this is so, also not embarrassing as you yeah. positioned it considering this podcast that we are <laughs> yes, here for. Yeah. We are all for the gritty details of this league. Okay, yeah. so your so your your main one is your critical darling. So you get you get 1 point per nomination and 5 points for a win. So that's where you would put, you know, your Titanics, your right. your your La La Lands. Uh, then you have your ultra snub, which you get five points for a nomination, but negative twenty for a win. Oh wow! And the playoffs and the playoffs of this league are the Razzies, the Indie Spirits, and the Oscars. And if you win, if your snub wins any of those, you automatically lose. So I had this year. I had been a little bit ballsy and put first man in the snub, uh, and so then it went. It oh, won. and it won and yes. it knocked oh, you wow. out. Yes. Yes. That? And then you have oh, and then you have two uh, actors categories. So you get five points for an acting nomination and 15 points for an acting win. But you get no other points for any other nominations or wins. And then there is a special interest category, which is animation, doc, or foreign. Sure. And you get, you know, a little bit of points for nominations and wins, but there's a big multiplier if you get more than one nomination. So if you know if you have a song nomination or if you have a cinematography. Yeah. So this year, Roma sort of won. Roma was just you know killing everybody sure. in that yeah. slot. And, and then then you also draft for you draft for the AVN awards, which is one of the preliminary awards. But the only category that matters is best title. And if you win best title at the AVNs, then you automatically make the playoffs. And so, wait, uh, remind so our the, audience what the AVNs are. The, the AVNs are the Adult Video News Awards. There we go. But I'm not 100 percent sure on what the N is, but yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, so it is. It is the Oscars for porn films. The porn Oscars. And this year, uh, Hamilton took home. Stop the, it! Wow. Home. The Hamilton porn parody, Hamilton. Uh, one best title, and so the the league's founder actually, you know, blew a bunch of his budget on Hamilton and blew, it paid yeah. off for him. Well, yeah, and then yeah, and then you also then you draft a movie for the Razzies, and so so at what and, point during the year do you do you, do you draft these movies? It changes. It changes. We used to do it fairly early November, and so then you would get it would you would usually do it before the uh, before the critic circle started weighing. Those were sort of the first right the first early weeks of the competition. I think. Uh, to make it easier, it's you know a lot of these uh, fantasy leagues are usually <laughs> sort of run by one person who does all the work, and the rest of you just kind of yeah. have fun and bitch at them uh, when when you can't remember the rules. And so to make it easier on him, I think we've started it a little bit later. So now we usually draft around I would say early December. Yeah, yeah. And so then I think, and then you know, and then I think the first the first competition is, this year was. Golden Globes are critic choice. So it was I a little see. bit of an abbreviated thing this year. But yeah, but it's it's really fun. It's I was Joe's movie... asking for details because he and I are about to Kool-Aid man into this <laughs> pool. Well, I was because say... if Joe loves anything, he loves a pool. Well, and I, if I, I love I, anything, it's some competition. I was so... in a movie fantasy league a couple years. And at that mm -hmm. one, 
combined there was like a box office round was the first round and that award oh, yeah. sort of came later so the the fun thing was you wanted to try and balance your roster with yes you yes. know blockbusters and awards plays the problem with that league was there were too many people in it so the mm-hmm. movies were too spread out so there was no there was no fun in like I'm going to drop this movie and pick this one up because like every if there was anything that was worth anything yeah somebody had it and then yeah. new movies were on like a first claimed first serve basis so the entire league became about people sort of waiting to be the first person to grab like this you know like Green Book would have been a good example this year yeah, like yeah. nobody knew about it and then once it becomes a thing like the first person to grab it gets it and I was just like all right well this is no fun because this is essentially just like whoever's on their computer at the right time on Twitter like yeah. gets this huge advantage so I kind of dropped out of that league but like I like the concept of it I like the general idea of gamifying this as much as possible yeah so. yeah I, th- I, I think this is so weird and there's it's a weird sort of thing in that there are so many weird little rules. Like, the rule book is probably 15 pages long. There's all sorts of crazy things. Into oh, it. another thing I didn't mention is there is your movie has to either be very good or very bad. There's sort of a, just I guess to account for like what would be injuries in normal, uh, in normal fantasy sports. Yeah. So, so there's, you go on the Rotten Tomatoes rating, and there's sort of a mediocre zone, and if a movie is in the mediocre zone, it cannot be drafted. Oh, and so that's interesting. If you, so it, it affected us two, years, two ways this year. So Bohemian Rhapsody was undraftable. Uh, its its IMDb rating was, was too low. It was in the 60s. Rotten Tomatoes rating yeah. was too low. Uh, Vice just barely snuck in. I was going to say, it was yeah. sort of... It was sort of down to the wire, and you know it was the first day we were you know, counting the reviews as they came in. Um, and then it helped me in that I just for some Byzantine rules I had been stuck with Welcome to Marwin and was not allowed to drop it, and so I was like, oh no, like I've lost the league. This is terrible. And every day I would check its Rotten Tomatoes to see if and it had finally moved. it crept up there, and it finally like it must have been just like some newspaper in some city that you know it released. I don't know, but it it finally crept up. Uh, to the mediocre zone, and I could, I could, I, it was suddenly ineligible, and I could drop it and pick up Holmes and Watson, which was a much better Razzie. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You really nailed it with that Razzie's pick. Nice. Well, that's all super fascinating, and it. Uh, oh shit! I had. A I thing. agree. I mean, I think. I love that this pool has an element to the AVN Awards, the yes. Board Movie Awards. Truly because, the full like, scope of the awards season. Yes, yes. <laughs> The it's, full it's, scope, it's but it's trophy. also like we are doing – we're talking about a movie today. We haven't mentioned it yet other than Joe and I are divisive on this. We're talking about a movie kind of at the convergence of the porno Oscars and the regular Oscars. That's we are true. talking about love and other drugs. There's a whole lot of sex in this movie, a whole lot of nudity slash non-nudity. It's directed by Edward Zwick, who has, like, the Beelzebub name attached to him for Oscar <laughs> watchers from The Last Samurai, but he's also known for Glory um, and other, like, epics. Uh, the movie was written with his um, 30-something partner, Marshall Herskovitz, and Charles Randolph. It's adapted from the book Hard Sell. It's a nonfiction book about the rise of Viagra sales. Um, talk about porn titles, Hard Sell. Um Famously, the movie stars a very non-clothed Jake Gyllenhaal and Anne Hathaway, also with Josh Gad, Judy Greer, Oliver Platt in like a, you know, a 
what do I want to say? Like a mentor role. He has a big yeah. monologue at the end. Jill Clayburgh pops up for a hot second. We miss you. Rest in peace, Jill. Hank Azaria. Um, the movie was obviously like a thing for Jake Gyllenhaal and Anne Hathaway. I remember their Entertainment Weekly cover where it was like they were naked in that too. Was That that wasn't a fall movie preview, was it, Joe? I don't think That I don't remember. I think by this point I had kind of fallen away from EW already. Yeah. Where I wasn't getting I was not I was not subscribing anymore. I will say that. Right, right, right. Um so I don't remember. The movie the Love and Other Drugs mostly skipped the uh festival circuit except it premiered at AFI. I think it might have closed AFI, but then it opened because what does the family want to all see together on Thanksgiving? They want to go see a sex movie. Uh it opened wide on Thanksgiving weekend. Can you imagine? I think I was alone when I saw this movie. Oh, I was fully I, alone when I saw this. There's no I way I would have seen this movie with like, people. On I actually opening did day. see this movie uh, with my family on a holiday. Wow. Oh, how did Tell that us go? all about that. So this was a few years back. So this was, this was, it is, this movie is a regular on HBO. And so this was, this was during, you know, in this sort of phase of its life. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in the winters, we would go down to visit my grandparents in Florida and uh, my grandfather has since passed, but he was sort of the 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 paterfamilias, and he was the one who had the remote. And it was sort of you would he would put on movies, and you would sort of just watch them with it. And there was no you know you would not uh, second guess his choices. You would just sort of sit there and and enjoy it. And and so yeah, so we were just sitting around and we were flicking through channels, and you know it was after Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune was over, and he just you know sort of channel surfing and we landed on love and other drugs and we watched i haven't seen i had not seen all of it it was probably around like 45 minutes of it but we saw most of the nudity and most of the sex montages amazing and we were all just sort of sitting there like yep this is this is this movie <laughs> this is happening <laughs> yeah this is yeah i think i think the year after that we watched 54 which was oh wow Hell yeah! Which, if you if you had known my ah. grandfather, these these movies would be interesting choices. He was he was not the man that you would expect to be putting these on. That is like comprehensive think... butt cinema of the mid two thousands for me. Is well, I guess fifty four was earlier than that, but uh, yeah, between Gyllenhaal and Ryan Phillippe in both of those, that was seminal. I will say yes, yes, amazing. Right. Yeah, I watched this movie in. In my own solitude, I was like, nope, no one is going to be able to clock me for seeing this movie mostly just to spot how naked Jake Gyllenhaal gets in this movie. Because by the time I saw it, the bad buzz on it had already kind of set in. I think this movie, like once critics started seeing this movie, all of the pre-release hopeful sort of sheen of it, of like... You know, maybe Anne Hathaway could get a Best Actress nomination. Maybe Jake Gyllenhaal. Who knows? And I think the pretty pretty quickly that bloom fell off the rose. I don't know. Am I misremembering, Chris? No, I mean it definitely did. I think it did pretty much immediately after it premiered at AFI, and there already was some kind of bad buzz because this was a movie that we were looking at throughout the season, but it didn't go to like Toronto, for example, where it like was kind of expected to premiere, at least by Oscar watchers. Um, so it just kind of it was one of those movies that before we actually got to see the thing, there were like rumblings that maybe it wasn't gonna be all that great. Um, yeah. 
I should. I definitely saw it immediately. I was stoked for this movie. Like I'm always gonna, I'm gonna be excited for this kind of movie, like a romantic dramedy that's very like frank about sex, in like when everything yeah. like surrounding it is so sanitized and like this movie's still fairly sanitized for what it is, but like yeah. they do spend half of the movie like unclothed and it's like somewhat draws attention to itself, but then like when it doesn't, it's really interesting yeah. compared to like the other movies that are like it. Um, I have a bit yeah, of a research update before we continue, which is oh, give the it. 2010 Entertainment Weekly fall preview. The cover of that was Harry Potter because this was in the middle of the five year span where only Harry Potter and Twilight made the cover of yeah. the fall preview issues, which is a reminder of why I had stopped reading Entertainment Weekly, or at least they stopped getting... They had to hit that once-a-month quota of getting they... Harry Potter on the cover. Though, I gotta say, that is a waste. Like, the fall movie preview, nobody's reading it for Harry Potter This is stuff. what I mean. But this was during... You can have your own Harry Potter issue. This was during the era where they really just sort of, like, <laughs> flushed their reputation down the toilet on the altar of... Wow, that's a mixed metaphor. Of, um... Of Harry Potter and Twilight and anything that was just like, that was the only thing that, you know, teens were going for. So they went really hard for that market. And I don't know. I, I Anecdotally, a lot of people I know really sort of fell out of Jumped love ship with. Then. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. Well, we'll get into the movie. But before we get into it, because we love to torture our guests, Nate, would you like to give us a 60 second plot description? Sure, I'd love to. All right, if you are ready, I will start your timer. Yes. All right, your 60-second plot description for Love and Other Drugs starts now. Okay, it's 1996. Jake Gyllenhaal is Jamie. He comes from a family of doctors, but he had ADD, so he couldn't be a doctor. So instead, he's a salesman, and he's flashing his grin uh, at an electronic store. He gets fired. He doesn't know what to do, so he becomes a drug salesman. And he uh, works for Pfizer, I believe, pitching Zoloft. And over the course of these travels where he goes to, he hangs out with doctors and pitches them on drugs, he meets Maggie. 30 seconds. by Anne Hathaway, who, uh, who is a, a free-spirited artist who has early-onset Parkinson's. So uh, they become sort of uh, fuck buddies, I suppose. But then, and she warns him not to catch feelings, but then he catches feelings uh, and... She says, don't, don't fall in love with me, and he falls in love with her anyway. Ten and they make a They make a go at it, and then they go to Chicago for a conference, and it goes very poorly, and they break up, and then something happens, and then they get and back together. Time. Nice job. Okay. So Nate did the best possible job of this that maybe the screenwriter <laughs> should have also done. And got the fuck he, on with it? Yeah. Uh, no. He completely erased Josh Gad from <laughs> the narrative. Yeah. I when you were going through the cast list, I wanted to pipe in but you know, I wanted to let you do the rundown first, but there's so much of this movie that feels, I mean, formulaic obviously. And which is funny because it is like based on a true story or whatever. But obviously the I love romantic comedies. I do not mind when a romantic comedy will go through the beats, but like so much of this movie felt like lingering on these elements or these sort of plot progressions that we have to go through where it's just like so much of the plot was Maggie being like, don't fall in love with me. I am spiky. Like I'm angry about my disease, like that kind of thing. And it's just like, okay, but like, we know we're going to get past this thing. So like at some point 
ease up on it or something. I don't know. And like the Josh Gad character is a perfect example of that, where it's just like, we are giving you so much of these two wildly attractive leads and they're having sex in incredibly sort of like nude configurations or whatever. And the audience is getting this glimpse at like, you know, Hollywood stars at their finest. And then it's just like, as a penance for that, we're going to give you like the fattest, grossest co-star we can find. And it's just like, God damn it. Like it's insulting and also like punishing to the audience because Josh Gad is so annoying. And I don't know. It just, it reeked of a studio balancing scales in a way that felt like stupid. I don't know. Here's where I come in to like kind of defend the movie a little bit. I think it's trying to marry two different things. Like it, there was like a version of this script that existed and then Edward Zwick got a hold of it and like was already wanting to do like a romantic comedy and then someone was like what if we make them be what if we make this be both and i think the movie is trying to like when it's not being a romantic comedy like skewer male sex culture a little bit in like especially in the 90s and like the emergence of the internet and porn and like because it's also the advent of viagra and like the josh gad character especially is like gross so they really lean into like gross male sexuality and like sexual urge and sexual hang-ups with that character and like some of it is absolutely too much like jake gyllenhaal walks in on him jerking off to a sex tape he Mm -hmm. made with anne hathaway so it's like he's watching a sex tape of his brother that he made by the way with like a super eight camera like i don't understand where that came into it at all too where it's just like right. at what point did we establish that anybody in this apartment is like an old school like film buff or whatever just like making their own home movies i don't i don't get it the, well, it's not it's also not just that that he watches the sex tape is that they then have an extended conversation about how large jake gyllenhaal's penis is oh there's so much in this yeah. movie about that too about just sort of just like let's just keep and i like i get it we're like the focus is always on how hot jake gyllenhaal is but like the interesting parts of this movie, to me, weren't, I mean, I hate to say weren't, like, Anne Hathaway's character having Parkinson's, because, like, it's, like, it is true that, like, that was not the interesting part of the movie for me. I liked, the parts that I liked were the parts where the movie was just, like, let us settle on the question of how to, not domesticate, but just sort of just, like, how to tame a fuckboy you know what i mean where it's just sort of like like jake gyllenhaal is kind of the ultimate fuckboy in this movie and the idea of just like can you end up with a guy like this like is it possible to or is this guy just like unredeemable just at his base and i was like okay well like that's at least halfway interesting and at least leads you naturally to these kind of you know sex comedy places but i think trying to weave it through also this kind of parable about the medical community and prescription drugs and I don't know, the sort of predatory nature of the prescription drug companies was too much strain on the plot for me. It's not like 
it's not entirely cohesive and it doesn't all work, but like I at least appreciate that like it's a romantic comedy or romantic dramedy that like has some other like things going on, you know, especially for how like you mentioned mechanical it is with the like building this relationship. Um yeah. I don't I mean like this is also in the era of like the hangover movies where it's like look how gross men are and like I hate those movies. Yeah. And it's like this feels like a response to those movies in a way that's palatable and like it's not always funny, but sometimes it's at least interesting to be delivered in this package versus something like that that's like hedonism and reinforcing a lot of that. Because I don't think that this movie does reinforce any of that gross behavior or support anything like Josh Gad's character does or anything Jake Gyllenhaal does before, like you mentioned, he's tamed. Yeah, it doesn't support it, but there's also, it doesn't quite work as sort of a satire, right? Like, you can right. sort of, it was it maybe, you know, <laughs> had this movie come out after, you know, Adam McKay made his switch, they would have maybe had sort of a model for how to do it, but, yeah, it's just kind of, yeah, that sort of satirical yeah. sort of bitingness doesn't really come out, and when you marry it to this sort of mawkish illness romance thing yeah they just kind of don't really blend i even just the like the music of this movie doesn't quite know what this movie is right we're like i have in my notes here at the very beginning where i'm just like really spin doctors for your opening music cue and then immediately the title card says 1996 and i'm just like look motherfucker i understand what music was in the 1990s and by 1996 we were not listening to spin doctors anymore so like uh, but it. we were listening to spin doctors in stereo equipment stores every circuit city in 1996 <laughs> was playing spin doctors calm down get out of here first of all get out of here there was much other music that we were, we were listening to republica in circuit city at that point in time and you know we were and then at the end my notes literally say how dare you bring regina specter into this because honestly how dare you i was yeah so... like they jumped 20 20 years yes! to have a Regina Spector song. I was at just the like that this 90s period piece. That woman is for Joseph Gordon-Levitt Zoe Deschanel movies at this point <laughs> in time and nothing else. So shut up. The last 5 minutes of this movie are genuinely awful that like montage that pans through their apartment. But like <laughs> yes. I don't know. This is maybe a movie that I can't defend all that well just to say like I like it way more than most people. Like I could watch this movie all the time. And like I think you know, like we talk a lot a little bit more about like how we want erotic dramas to come back like the type of movies Adrian Lynn was making. And we don't really have those movies anymore because things are so like chased um, for the most part or like sexless. And like, I appreciate that we also get this romantic comedy. That's not afraid of sex. Um, Cause like, I do think people like want to see that at the movies and it at least feels, I think the most real believable thing in this movie is the sexual relationship. I think that's true. That's interesting to me. I think that's true. I think for a while there, I had to kind of separate my own sort of sense of my guilty pleasure sense of just like, wait, my favorite parts of this movie are all the parts where we can see Jake Gyllenhaal's like entire body. Like that's, that just seems purient to me. Right. But I was just like, well, but it is also the parts of the movie. movie. 
Well, it feels like the parts of the movie where they know exactly the movie that they're making. Yeah. Whereas the other ones, yeah. they're trying to make a lot of different things work. This movie f- reminded me of a lot of other movies that I was trying to think of, like, if this movie had Oscar ambitions, which it definitely had Oscar conversation, but I don't know if it was made with the idea of we're going to get Oscar nominations. But at some point or another, people got it into their head that, like, this is... I think it was because Hall and Anne Hathaway were reteaming from Brokeback Mountain, so I think mm-hmm. there was a lot of... There was a little bit of transference there. But I think you're looking at a movie like this and, it's like, what are its best-case scenario Oscar stuff? And I think you're thinking of... Stuff like Up in the Air. A lot of the salesman stuff felt like Up in the Air a little bit. Or you're thinking of Silver Lightning's Playbook, which a lot of the relationship stuff outside of the sex scenes played a little bit like Silver Lightning's Playbook. And like those two movies, and I know Silver Lightning's Playbook comes after, but I feel like those two movies are like your best case scenario for a movie like Love and Other Drugs. And it fell short for, you know, various reasons. But. Mm-hmm. Did you think of did you guys think of any other sort of Oscar successes that would have compared to this when you were watching it? I think in terms of like romantic comedies that are also like somewhat of a satire like broadcast news is the like shining example sure. that nothing standard. else has really matched. Yeah. Um and well I mean I guess James L Brooks did have like pseudo romantic comedies afterwards but like yeah, I guess the gold standard is broadcast news. Um, or even like Jerry Maguire, I guess. I do think yeah. there is an element where it's like sexual frankness, especially nudity, can be rewarded as like its own risk. Uh-huh. Like that definitely was part of the Holly Berry no- narrative mm-hmm. that she was willing to go there with Monsters Ball. Yeah. Uh, um, I don't know if it gets rewarded in comedy, though. Except for maybe like Kathy Bates and about Schmidt, right? Which is a different yeah. kind of nudity, like altogether right. in terms of just like there's comedy nudity, and then there's like although I guess Kathy Bates and about Schmidt is a little bit differently because because she's Kathy Bates. Well, and also like it is comedy Oscar nudity, winner. but it's not like it's it's comedy based on um, sort of like confrontational, where it's just sort of just like. It's like Diane Keaton in Something's Gotta Give nudity, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just sort of just like, you know, face this, like confront it, confront your feelings about, you know, about women and why, you know, why does this frighten you so much? And and this is definitely much more in the male gaze. Yeah. Much more in the male gaze. I mean, we I think we get a decent amount of, I think the gaze in this movie is actually pretty egalitarian. I don't think she is any more... Um, leered over right then he is and in fact maybe even more maybe that's just like my perspective coming out but i feel like the movie does one of the admirable things about this movie is that it really does work hard to um to make things pretty equal on that front and it feels i never felt like I've never felt bad for how much of Anne Hathaway we were seeing because I think it was equal and opposite with with Joan Hall, which is really uncommon for a romantic comedy. And yeah, that's why I think it's interesting. It's definitely uncommon yeah. for nudity in movies because even something like Shame that has a lot of nudity on both sides, like it feels, yeah, like it's treated differently based on gender. Shame would have been the next year. Ooh, no, Shame I think is. 
Shame I always remember as the young adult year, I think. Right, 2011. Is that 2011? Yeah, yeah it's so. 2011. Never mind. Um, it, I, I think the other thing about Love and Other Drugs is it comes in the midst of a really strong Oscar year. Where, like, yes. I think in a weaker year, Anne Hathaway maybe is able to amass some kind of, like, Golden Globes comedy momentum or whatever to make a play at the race. Because I do think she's very good in this movie. And I think she d- gets a lot, enough elements of, you know, she's got some really good clip scenes and her character has a lot of sort of buzzy parts to it that she could have maybe make make a run but i feel like we've talked about 2010 best actress before but like it's worth mentioning again that like that is a solid gold lineup that had like sixth seventh and eighth place that year were like incredibly strong where it's portman for black swan annette benning for kids are all right michelle williams for blue valentine uh jennifer lawrence for winter's bone and nicole kidman for for rabbit hole and then like even not making it were julianne moore in kids are all right leslie manville in another year help me out with anybody else i'm not thinking of but just like it's an incredibly stacked category that like hathaway was just never going to crack that no it was i mean like yeah um i also would say like except with the exception of maybe um the kids are all right which still had its own like level of gravitas to it Mm -hmm. there's not a whole lot of room particularly in best actress for something that's a lighter fare like this is a very heavy year and i think that's part of the reason why the king's speech succeeded because it made people feel good yeah um when like a lot of this subject matter is either like dark or finger quotes depressing like, I think that makes it harder for a movie like Love and Other Drugs, even though you would think maybe it stands out, it it kind of really just gets buried among all the, like, grimness. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably true, especially in that category. I think if you look at, like, Best Picture 2010, I think there's a decent spread of, like, the social network is not really like Black Swan, is not really like... Um, winter's bones you know what i mean like it's a lot of dramas but it's a lot of like different types of dramas the only comedy i think well besides toy story toy story being its own thing toy story 3 um was the kids are all right and even the kids are all right has some like you know and even toy story 3 though like the thing that people loved about it was like how hard it made them cry and it's like you have toy story 3 let's not forget is a kids movie with holocaust imagery yeah (laughs) that's very true it. Ugh, I don't love Toy Story three. Um, I don't either. I'm with you. But yeah, I think I think that's definitely true of Anne Hathaway and like what the competition was like for her. But I mean, there was a time where Jake Gyllenhaal, like, had he had a more like praised performance, he could have cracked this Best Actor field. Like, it's Colin Firth won for King's Speech, obviously. There's Jesse Eisenberg for The Social Network, Jeff Bridges for True Grit, James Franco for 127 Hours, and Javier Bardem for Beautiful, which, like, that took a very, like, gung-ho campaign to get Javier Bardem nominated for that movie that not a lot of people saw. Like, I remember, like, Julia Roberts hosting screenings of that movie yeah. to, like, get people to see it. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, like, Jake Gyllenhaal, this is, like, 
he has this reputation for not being liked by Oscar, but really it's that Oscar doesn't like the movies that he did, specifically right. in this era. Like, because just about everything he did got some type of, like, Oscar buzz attached to it. Like, we've talked about Brothers before. There's Rendition, Jarhead. This is, like, the post... His post his nomination for Brokeback Mountain, and it was just, like... I think some of it, and, like... Love and Other Drugs does this better than those other movies where he's supposed to be like a charismatic leading man. And like, that's not what he's ever going to be awarded for. So I guess he's in his weirdo phase and it's not really getting awarded either. So, like, yeah, this does feel like the end of that phase of his career, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like, is is it 2011 when he first starts to make that kind of weirdo turn? Yeah, end of watch. I feel like is the is where it switches for him. Where all of a sudden he's playing yeah. like haunted cops and strange sort of like uh, like nightcrawler type characters, and like enemy is also very like dark and strange. And he's playing his own doppelganger in that movie. So yeah, it's this definitely feels like. Although I guess maybe Demolition was an attempt to maybe recapture that a little bit. But, like, certainly not in terms of the... Like, this is... This character feels like it's really letting Jake Gyllenhaal turn that charisma up to 11. And just sort of just, like, do you. And he seems to be having a great time with it, I will say. Like, he definitely seems like he's, you know living his best life playing this character that opening montage of him sort of like doing the slick salesman thing i was just like he's so good at this he's so like this is so in his wheelhouse to do this to the point where i'm like does it make me not like him a little bit i don't know um because he's so he like just slides into that character so well but you're right in that like he doesn't really go back to this after this movie yeah it's like this is the movie where he stopped trying to be a traditional leading man. And I mean maybe some of that is because it, it wasn't as satisfying or he didn't get the results that he like I how thirsty do we think Jake Gyllenhaal is for an Oscar? Because there is this pivot point in his career that makes you think that either he was unsatisfied with the work or unsatisfied with the response. Well, it's maybe worth I'm noting that this is also this is also the same year that he stars in Prince of Persia and that bombs. And so yeah. I think part of it is also that like the studios were backing away from him at the same time, right? Where like he you know, he may well have gotten tired of traditional Hollywood leading man stuff, but like traditional Hollywood was also like, maybe you're not a leading man. So it's maybe a little bit of chicken or the egg thing there. And I think it ultimately worked out best for everybody because everybody seems to love Jake Gyllenhaal in this new phase of his career. I'm a little bit more mixed, but like I'm, you know, crabby. But I think if you ask, you know, film critics or people who are really into movies, I think they'll take the run of... End of Watch, Prisoners, Enemy, Nightcrawler, uh, um, Oakja, what's this new one? Velvet Buzzsaw. Like, I think people seem to be, at the very least, into this new phase of Hall's career. New in that it's, you know, been happening for about eight years now. Right. I just don't know, like, I don't know what the weirdo performance is that's going to get him another nomination. I think that the 
the performance that will get him another nomination is in the love and other drugs vein because like if this movie was better like like you mentioned he is so good at this and i don't think that we have a lot of actors right now who are and it's like if you just put him in a better movie like it'll feel like yeah finally he'll have the movie that defines a certain part of his personality that like like what's that movie? What's that movie that says that Jake Gyllenhaal is super charismatic and like charming and handsome and I don't think I think we think of him as that, but we don't have a defining movie for that to use as an example. And like I think Love and Other Drugs would be it if it was a better movie. Is Jake Gyllenhaal if he gets the roles that Ryan Gosling has been getting, is that what we're talking about? Maybe. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where I feel like, I mean, I don't know if Jake can, you know, either sing or dance. He wasn't, he was not in the Mickey Mouse Club as Jake Gyllenhaal as Ryan Gosling was. But like, I could see Jake Gyllenhaal doing the like astronaut movie thing. I could see him doing the, you know, charming Emma Stone (laughs) in a Hollywood movie about itself kind of a thing. I don't know, Nate. What do you think? What where where are you on Gyllenhaal right now? Uh, yeah, I don't think it's going to be the Oakchas and the Velvet Buzzsaws. It feels like he's sort of, these are sort of these things that he needs to get out of his system. Or they, they feel like sort of exorcisms in a way, or like acting <laughs> workshops, right? They sort of feel like he's, this is he's like, what are, the biggest, what are the biggest choices I can make right. and still be in this movie, you know, and not get fired? Um, and so I think there will need to, you know, there, he's going to need to tamp some of that down. I don't, you know... Will I'm sure it'll get old for him eventually, but yeah, I don't know. I think I I was trying to figure out because I don't like has Oscar been going for that kind of like you know the the sort of ideal Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm trying to think like not for have, men. Has, I mean, yeah, like, like they that's sometimes not really reward what they it want with anymore. women. Like this like, is yeah, the they, year Natalie Borman got her Oscar, so it's like yeah, yeah. Actresses can do something like outlandish and get rewarded for it but i can't think of an actor other than like keith ledger for the joker but that's its whole other thing you know yeah yeah my first instinct uh was to say like whenever he does a biopic i don't know maybe that's, that's <laughs> yeah. a shallow answer but uh, you know, that's like, the shitty thing though to, you know like i feel like that's just at least in the past 10 years like that's sort of just the direction they're going and you know, like, I don't but know, the do thing you is, want to see him play He does go JFK? and do a like, biopic. He did Stronger, yeah. and, like, that yeah. didn't go yeah. anywhere. Yeah, it's true. That's true. So I don't know what it, Jake Gyllenhaal's going to do. Have to yeah, do. I, think he's sort, I think he's sort of in between, right? They like, they, he's not, he's too old for some of the roles they like, and he's not old enough for the other ones, right? Like, he's not. Yeah. He's aged out of like those Eddie Redmayne, you know. I don't think he would ever do like a Rami Malek type thing, but you know, he's he's sort of the, he's not that. He's not sort of the sort of male ingenue guy, right? But then he's not, you know, he's not your your Gary Oldman, you know. He's not. Yeah, I'm sort of looking this, at the last you know? five years of Best Actor winners, and it's three people who played real people. Um, in these sort of like physical slash makeup transformations between Oldman as Churchill, Malik as Mercury, Redmayne as Stephen Hawking, you've got DiCaprio doing the closest thing to what I could see Gyllenhaal doing in this stage of his career, which is, you know, growing a long ass beard and going into the wilderness and freaking out. 
but so much but of I that. But I feel like win, Jake Gyllenhaal has done that. <laughs> that's no, that's what I mean. I think that's has the closest. He not done that. And Jake Gyllenhaal, but like I feel like Gyllenhaal feels like right there's so I wrote about Jason Clark this week this week. I loved that. And by Jason the way. Clark feel right, Jason Clark, you can put him in a period piece. Whereas you, you you can't really put Jake Gyllenhaal in a period piece, I don't think. He just feels so twenty first century. There's just something about, you know, his you know, in this movie, his smarminess and his you know, that sort of glint in his eye. Yeah. I think, the I think closest... last year's wildlife is a good example of that because he does feel like out of place in a way that you really can't say why. Yeah. But that's a, that's a really interesting observation because I think that's true. Uh, oh, one other thing that was happening with Jake Gyllenhaal's career that I think we should mention in the fall of 2010 was this was the, the Taylor Swift era of his career. Oh, so God. This was when... This was when they were photographed walking down the street in Park Slope with the maple lattes, and it was sort of this... I forgot I about I that. I can't remember where I was working at the time, but I just remember, like, there was a solid... It just feels like the, the paparazzi were all over that relationship, and that was such a big thing. And I think that was the start of the, at least for Taylor Swift, that was the start of the narrative of, like, are these real or are these sort of... Right. All for show. Right. And I think the, sort of the, the in-your-face nature of that relationship sort of made people, you know, sort of start to wonder. But then, you know, two years later, she comes out with Red, which is apparently all about this totally real relationship she had with an actor who bears a lot of similarities with Jake Gyllenhaal. So mm-hmm. who knows? Oi. Yeah, indeed. I did want to, before we move to Hathaway, because I think there's a little bit to talk about Hathaway... I, I wrote, I sketched down just a little, I, I meant, I framed it as just kind of a brief history of Jake Gyllenhaal being hot, because I feel like it's so much a part of his narrative in terms of, because he got hot at the exact same time that he got respected by the Oscars, <laughs> in that, like, Brokeback, 2005 was Brokeback Mountain, which was his Oscar nomination year, his sort of big breakthrough as, like, a serious adult leading man, right? And that's the same year as Jarhead, where he bulks up and, like, there's that whole scene with him in, like, the Santa hat and whatever, where that was the moment where he became this kind of, uh, sort of, like, like slobbered-over icon in terms of just, like... I think both (laughs) of those things at the same time were, like, every gay man in America was just like, okay... Like, we'll have this now. And that was such a turning point for him. And I think Love and Other Drugs feels like, if not the end point of that era, but just sort of just like the high point where it's just like he hasn't really reached that level of objectification since then. And I don't know. I don't know whether that whether that does anything to Oscar chances whatsoever, but I just wanted to like commemorate that like five year span of this very real sort of like moment in time. I'm trying to think of like, who is that now? Whereas like everything, because everything is so sort of spread out and everybody has their own sort of like specialized interests. But like, remember how everybody freaked out over Sean Mendes a few weeks ago with those Calvin Klein photos? I feel like that's the Not closest. I. I get it. No, but that's, that's the thing too, <laughs> where it's just sort of like you either like, 
are into that or you have to like make sure that everybody knows that you're not into it because like it's a referendum on this one person's sort of like attractiveness and i think that was we've Gyllenhaal. used the example before of brad pitt in the 90s yes where it's a very specific thing of like everybody thinks that you're crazy hot and like no one will like shut up about how hot you are and then like feels no shame in like being lascivious yeah like talking about this person but also they are an actor who does almost exclusively prestige projects and i mean maybe it's chalamet but Chalamet, Chal- little, it's different because Chalamet, it's not about the body. You know, Chalamet right. is yeah. the hair right. and the, the personality. Lips and, yeah, it's a little bit of a – yeah, and the personality and the humor. It's a little bit right. not it, – yeah, it's a little of a different vein. The last thing I can think of in that vein was Nick Jonas, but that was probably a few years ago at this point. And Nick yeah. Jonas is enough of a – like, Nick Jonas isn't an actor. Like, you can't – you can look at Nick Jonas and see how hot he is, and you can just be like, but he's a shit actor, so whatever. Like, I I don't have to deal with him on this level. Where it's just like, the fact that Gyllenhaal became so, like, incredibly buff the exact same year as he became his most respected professionally, I think it's just so fascinating to me. It was just like, oh shit, we've got to, like, deal with both at the same time now. And I think Pitt is a good, is a good comparison, because I, that felt like... That was happening for him, too. So, I don't know. And Pitt went through his very sort of, like, nightcrawler phase, too, right? Where he was just like, I'm going to make 12 monkeys just to, like, not just to, but just, like, and it will grime up my, you know, golden boy persona a little bit. Yeah. And it worked. You guys, I think we should make a hard pivot to the elephant in the room that we have not addressed yet. And that is Anne Hathaway hosting the Oscars with James <laughs> Franco. Yeah. Okay, so I looked this up. The announcement that Anne Hathaway was going to co-host with James Franco, it happened the weekend after this movie was launched. And, like, I think that that is a very curious thing. Like, is it almost this admission that her camp knew she wasn't going to get yes. nominated for yes. this movie yes. because it would be very weird to have a nominee host the Oscars. But he unless did. They're like, but Franco was yeah. nominated. Well, okay, year. never mind. That's the stupidest thing I've ever said. No, it's but, not stupid, like, but I think it's, it's, it's telling in that like her camp was like, Franco this isn't happening for least. you. So let's maybe get you into this anyway. And his camp was just like, whatever, like, yeah, it's like, well, won't, won't you be won't you be distracted being a nominee and a host? And they're just like, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like not planning on putting a whole lot of effort into this one way or the other. So <laughs> might, might as well. And I think that like because this is kind of a weird transition time for Anne Hathaway, even like and this is at the beginning of the Internet being mean to her. Because yeah. she was nominated for Rachel getting married in, for, in 2008. Then she did, like, like more, uh, like, traditional, like, box office roles like Bride Wars. And then this movie came along and the hosting gig. And, like, Franco leaves her stranded in the show. He's terrible from the get-go. And she's trying to make it work. And, like, obviously, like, she's uh, she and Lady Gaga are, like, our like royalty of theater kids of like the tryhards <laughs> yeah. who are like gonna put on a show god damn it and like always producing um 
so it's like, I don't know. There's, she definitely deserved more credit than she got for this. Like it's, I don't know if we will ever have like worse reviewed Oscar hosts, but like she not only is trying to steer the ship of this ceremony, but she's also trying to pick up Franco's slack. Right. Mm-hmm. I feel like recently people have, she, I feel like she's starting to get more and more credit for that. I think there's been a little bit of, um, I don't know, not revisionist, but there's a little bit of sort of coming around to the narrative that, it, uh, putting it more on Franco and less on her, I think, yeah. recently. Yeah. And like she did, I remember she had a musical number in the middle of the show that people thought was really try hard, but like. Well, it, and especially it was coming two years after. She did essentially the same thing during Jackman's opening yes. of that Oscars. Yes. And I think it's one of those like once is charming, twice is trying kind of thing where it's just like if we see you go back to that well again, it's just just like, oh, this is like I think people sort of started envisioning Anne Hathaway, age 10, at like her family's cocktail parties or whatever. Where it was just like, Annie, Annie, come out and do that thing that you do. And she's just like, you know... And I think once you start envisioning my I'm starting to build up this theory that like all of modern life and social media and the way we feel about both like actors and politicians and whatever public figures is just grafting on all our good and bad feelings about people we knew when we were in high school and college. And ultimately, I think Anne Hathaway just reminded too many people of that annoying girl that they knew in high school or college who was very performative and that sort of snowballed into its own thing. And I think the comeback around for her is I think enough other people were just sort of like, yeah, but like that girl was also nice to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Just like that girl was nice to me when y'all dicks were not. So yeah. Yeah, or or the bullying reminded them of yes, the way people yes. would bully them, also you know, that. and so then that's that gets turned around. Yeah, I also think she has maybe a little bit more of an organic, laid back persona now too. Like the it came yeah. through was like the like finale for <laughs> yes. Anne Hathaway show hard, yeah, or try hard, um, mm. and like now she just seems like kind of a normal person who sometimes plays weirdos in the movies. I think her role in Ocean's 8, for as much as, like, people were sort of all over the board in terms of their appreciation for Ocean's 8, I think her role in that movie was kind of perfect in that it sort of ran the gamut for how we feel about Anne Hathaway, where it's, like, all it starts off and she's just sort of this, like, insufferable actress, whatever, and doing all these sort of, like, actressy things that we can't stand. And by the end of the movie, it's just like, oh, you're just, like kind of a weirdo who wants people to like her and it's just like okay well i can relate to that and okay well, good we're and good. she's also like playing new jersey trash who's yeah. like supposed to be elegant and that's part of what's so funny about it yeah yeah i don't know yeah. like I, I love i'm excited for you know this yeah. phase of anne hathaway's career like uh, i will be excited to see whatever she gets her second oscar for she has a todd haynes movie coming out yeah. she's doing the witches which everybody is like about and i am so excited <laughs> to see her get weird in that movie she's got the d reese movie coming out with netflix yep yeah. 
She's got a really interesting year ahead of her, I will say. After doing all my like deep dive research for when I was on Little Gold Men, like she's got an interesting year ahead of her, and I'm looking forward to it. We like Annie. We like Annie. <laughs> Part of my memory bit, of uh, this. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, we talked a little bit about Edward's Wick when we did the Courage Under Fire episodes. We don't really need to go too deep on him, but I think it's worth noting that like this was kind of the end point for him. Yeah. In terms yeah. of, for a while there, he was a little bit of a um, sort of Oscar soothsayer a little bit, or just sort of like a good luck charm for, he directs Glory, Denzel Washington wins his Oscar. He directs... Um, Last Samurai, Ken Watanabe gets a nomination. He directs Blood Diamond, get nominations for DiCaprio and uh, Jaiman Hansu. And a bunch that was... of grim movies for your dad. Right. Well, and they're all, like, not coincidentally, I think, also these kind of um, racially and culturally dubious movies where white people um, lead, lead or, um, or sort of maneuver people of color or people of different countries they're like you know white savior movies to not to for their own narrative that have nothing to do with the like larger canvas the movie's dealing with it's always wild to me that matthew broderick is the lead of glory (laughs) like it's just so it's perfectly edwards wick in that way but so i think for a while there people sort of look to his movies as like you know what we may not like him but he's got some kind of a touch with the academy and for a long time i was like on a long enough timeline, Edward Zwick is going to win an Oscar, and we're all going to have to deal with that. I remember thinking the same thing about Joel Schumacher. I don't. I think, I don't think I feel that way about either of them anymore. But if I had to pick between the two of them, I think it's more likely that Joel Schumacher comes out with a movie that ends up being an Oscar player now than Zwick. Because I think after Blood Diamond, Defiance was like really hyped because it seemed like an Oscar type of movie. World War Two, yada yada, gets nothing. Love and Other Drugs is his next one after that. Gets nothing and is kind of, uh, like, this was a little bit of a punching bag for a while. Like, people really hated this movie. And well, then, and initially, like, it was supposed to be, like, a at least a cinematic, like, return to what he did on TV with 30-something. Right. was a really popular show, really critically acclaimed show about, like, essentially it was like a sex comedy in the early 90s it was a got multiple emmys for like every year that it was running he was uh the the divide between movies wick and tv's wick has always been so funny because he has really defined reputations in both but they could not be more different in terms of like his movies tend to be very male, very sort of like white male hero stuff, and his TV stuff tends to be like ABC relationship, uh, multiple characters, female POV kind of. We're like thirty something. My so-called life, relativity, once and again. Those are his four big TV. Uh, sort of triumphs relativity being a very like short-lived but people still kind of talk about it uh in a way that just like oh that show that i liked that didn't last very long um and i just think that's kind of funny and i think you're right that like love and other drugs is probably the movie of his if we you know maybe also counting like about last night which was his first feature film um that feels closest to his tv stuff well, and we have this thing as Oscar watchers to like predict show people who either run shows or like are known like TV auteurs 
that have success with like Emmys or critics on TV, and then they make a movie, and we think that that is going to translate, um, whether or not it's in the vein of what they're doing, and like that always happens. Makes me very curious about Lucy in the Sky this year, which is Noah Hawley's yeah um, Natalie Portman oh, yeah. movie. Um, if it were Noah anybody Hawley, but him, Fargo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't like him. I really don't. I truly don't. Fargo can fucking suck it, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Nate, did you watch that trailer yet? I'm sure you did. I did, I did, yeah. Um Diaper Astronaut. It, yeah, they didn't they did not mention the diaper, right? They did is, no, they fully don't. Too, I think it's supposed to be the, loosely based on this. Yeah. On so I wonder if they will include that. Uh, you know, can you make a movie about the story without oh, people will riot. the most famous People part will of be it? so disappointed if they don't. But then if you but then if you do include it, that feels like a totally different movie than what the trailer seems to be selling. Yeah, that feels you know, Yeah. The, like who makes that movie, I wonder? Is that like a Soderbergh kind of a movie? Is that like Yeah, yeah, that feels very like late late Soderbergh. You have to be a little arch. wacky astronauts. Yeah. <laughs> right. And this feels Feels a little more like, you know, not quite annihilation level, but kind of I don't know. Like part of it kind of felt like across the universe, right? Where there's sort of these flourishes sort of about surreal, space, yeah. Like flourishes, yeah, yeah, and kind of sort of these in-camera practical effects yeah. to sort of reflect the fractured nature of this tale. I think at and... the very least, I'm gonna love her in it. I don't know if I will love yeah. the whole movie, but like she seems incredibly compelling in that trailer, and I'm really into it. One of Hair Joe and I's favorite subgenre is Natalie Portman has depression. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say Natalie Portman does a voice, but also that. <laughs> well, I mean, like, those two go hand in hand. That's what's yeah. going on. There should be more diapers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. There will never be another diaper astronaut. <laughs> Not another diaper astronaut. There won't be another camera. Not another camera. That's the worst Jackie Kennedy. Natalie Portman is Jackie Kennedy. Can you do a good one, though? Is that possible for anybody to do? Because, like, her doing that is essentially, yeah. like, sounds bad, even though it's accurate. Yeah, the fun of it is how bad it is. Yeah. You know, that's the... It's like Julianne Moore doing her Boston accent in 30 Rock. Ugh, that accent's idiotic. And it's like, was <laughs> was it intentionally bad? Does it matter? Like, it's it's one of those things. It's just like, is she making fun of people doing Boston accents, or is she just doing a bad Boston accent? And it's like, at some point, I don't care. Like, listen, it's, listen. It's a, we effective we either don't way. Not, we do not besmirch Julianne on this podcast, though, as we learned last week. Julianne does not do voices. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we can't do two weeks in a row where we knock Julianne more. Well, uh, something bad will happen to us. Um, but I think, uh, like, that's a good example. Like, uh, Lucy in the Sky of TV, we think that it could transfer into Oscar stuff. Like, there were the people who foolishly thought that life itself could have done so oh, last yes. year for Dan right. Fogelman. Right. Yeah, I, I reread my Oscars preview, and and life itself, I think, was was in there, and how how little I knew back then. Ah, uh, listen, it's, we all we all were on that same page. I feel like I'm also just a jerk, and I'm like, this movie looks like wet garbage. Don't 
talk about this movie. That's how I so was. No, I, I pulled that card. I, you know, I pulled that card with my editor for Marwin. So <laughs> yeah. there, was, there was, I, I ended up with a bet where if, if Marwin ended up a best picture nominee, I would have to pay my editor a hundred dollars. And I, you know, we made this in like early September. Oh, that's amazing. When he was like, Hey, can you put Marwin on the list of contenders? And I was like, absolutely not. It feels like you've got a lot on the line every Oscar season between your pool or your fantasy league and these like side bets you've got going on. I like this. Yeah. It's all very high living on the edge yeah um i wanted to mention before we moved on that um this was a movie produced under the fox 2000 banner which as we learned the this week this week as we're recording this um that the disney acquisition of fox will be leading to the shuttering of fox 2000 and what that means for you know the Fox sort of like movie hierarchy is remains to be seen, but Fox 2000 to not to put, to not put too fine a point on it was in many ways, they're kind of mid level. Like people always talk about, like they never make movies, you know, for grownups to see anymore. And this feels like this was Fox's division to do just that, just going through their uh, list of titles on IMDb. It's funny that their first one is 1996 for Courage Under Fire, which is a movie that we have talked about uh, on this podcast, directed by Edward Zwick before. But they did One Fine Day, Inventing the Abbots, Volcano, which is like, it's not all just sort of like happy relationship movies or whatever. <laughs> but like they did, they did Volcano, they did uh, Thin Red Line, they did Life of Pi. Like they did bigger movies, but I think their bread and butter was like, Never Been Kissed and um, Anna and the King and Unfaithful, the Diane Lane movie that got her an Oscar nomination. I'm just sort of scrolling through. Yeah. In Her mm-hmm. Shoes, one of our favorite movies, Chris and I. I don't know how you feel about that one, Nate, but like. I've never seen oh it. Oh my so. God, highest recommendation. Go see it. Um, Family Stone, Devil Wears Prada, uh, 27 Dresses, which like a lot of people sort of poo poo, but I love that movie as a great sort Recently of. Recently, Hidden Figures. Yes. Being a great success. Hidden Figures, great success. Um. Even when they don't succeed, it's like Water for Elephants, where it's just like, I'm glad we have failures like Water for Elephants out there. We should put that on our list, by the way, Chris, of movies we should talk about on this podcast. Oh, I can't watch that scene again. <laughs> I can't. I can't do it. I have a hard time with animal abuse. I don't want to watch Water for Elephants. All right, fine. But maybe um, we'll do that movie. Monuments Men, where we talked about uh, last week when we talked about Clooney failures. Bridge of Spies, which was a Best Picture nominee. Joy, which again, a failure that I'm glad exists. Love, Simon, and The Hate You Give were two movies that just last year that, like, I... Hate You Give is great. I think, and also, like, say what you will about both of those movies. I think they're both good movies that are flawed. But, like, I'm glad that there was an imprint somewhere. Like, some company was looking out for making movies on the level of Love, Simon, and The Hate You Give directed towards the, you know, protagonist communities that, that both of those had and you know where does fox pick up that slack who knows where does disney have you know pick up that slack if they're even interested in doing that i don't know but it's kind of a bummer that you know joe and i had this conversation offline and my concern is that fox searchlight will become more along producing the content more along the lines that fox 2000 did and my fear is that it is potentially threatening to the much smaller or more idiosyncratic films and searchlight becomes a little bit more like straight down the middle fair like joe mentioned like never been kissed so mm-hmm. we shall see 
this Disney Fox merger is bad news. Yeah, I think that's one thing we can probably all agree on. So, did we want to? I, before we got into IMDb, was there anything else? I did. Ha- I have my little catch-all, you know, going through my notes thing. But did you guys have anything else you wanted to talk about before we did end of the show I mean, stuff? Was this the final movie marketed be, uh, around the nudity? I'm trying to remember. I feel like that was such a big thing in the 90s and 2000s. Maybe just because I was growing up then. But it feels like I haven't. Yeah, I haven't seen that as much anymore, and it does sort of feel like something that you know, for whatever reason, would not happen as much today. I feel like I... the leaking of Jennifer Lawrence's uh, nudes on her on her phone changed a lot of that. Where it's just sort of yeah. like it's so backlashed now that I feel like any movie that tried to do that would get such a huge backlash that I think it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. Even at the time of Love and Other Drugs, it felt like kind of an, an anomaly. Though, you put Outlaw King on our outline, and like that yes. is a great example. That Outlaw King, like the whole thing surrounding... And maybe it was more like, that's what people grappled onto, and that's not how Netflix sold the movie. But like it almost felt like a, revolutionary, like, a revolution. Like, whoa, are, are, are we doing this? Are we telling people to see a movie because of a penis? Like, I will say, as somebody who was at the Toronto premiere for Outlaw King and who absolutely wrote a post the next morning about... Oh, I did as his, well. Because yeah, I was we were, like, <laughs> I know... like. Yeah. I want to get my work done today as quickly as possible, and I already know what my editor is going to ask for. So you know what? Like, I'm just going to do this. And yeah, and we wrote like after that. That was the only thing that I think I ever wrote on Chris Pine's penis in that movie. But I know when that movie came out, like my, the place that I used to work for wrote no fewer than like six articles all about like where to find it and like what's you know what does it mean like this whole kind of thing and it's just like yeah like we all went like we all went hard quote unquote (laughs) um on on nudity articles for outlaw king and even if netflix didn't like come up with that angle themselves i don't think they did anything to dissuade people about it do you have no, another example, not. Nate? Because, like, I feel like, I don't know, maybe the one that comes to my mind, which is obviously not a great example, is, like, if if sex is ever sold in any way about a movie, about a plot, it has to be, like, subversive. Like, I, I, I'm super curious how we would have received L like a year or two late, which is like a rape revenge movie. It's clearly sold on the fact that it was going to be provocative and challenging and like unflinching about what it was about. But like, even just like something like a light sex comedy. Yeah. Well, you yeah. even look at like is the, the response... really uncommon unless it's like a raunchy teen thing. Like we had blockers last year. There's going to be um, book smart and good boys this year that are just like, it's in, by genre it is a raunchy comedy but specifically to nudity and like sex being taken seriously or as part of the package in an adult way is not like i'm seriously struggling to find an example and you're right nate that it's like it was so much more common in the 90s when we were younger and it's like erotic dramas were a thing yeah, or even like Swordfish. I remember like so much of the story around Swordfish was yeah. Halle Berry and the bonus that she yep. got for doing you know the extra nude scene. Yep. 
and then you know and that played into monsters ball a year or so later i think yeah that was sort of mm-hmm. a part of you know that wasn't the main oscar sell on that but i think it sort of helped there was sort of this prestige nudity in a way that i think you know maybe even like shakespeare in love also got a boost from there was a while there i that feels very sort of like 90s and early 2000s to me of like a signifier that that you are serious about your craft is that you will like go topless for a role and i think i you contrast that with um what year was it that blue is the warmest color played can Oh, God, was that 2013? 2012, 2013, something like that. And I remember the initial response to that was very much just like, you know, unflinching sex scenes. And it's all, you know, for dedication to the film and and to the craft. And it's so impressive. And uh, And that's like one of the most lascivious movies I've ever seen. And she gets like, she gets uh, co-Palm d'Or credit, right? There's like that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then within weeks... The narrative of that went from how unflinching a film this is, how brave, how sort of like, um, you know, prestige this is to how exploitative this is. I can't believe this is a male gaze movie. This, you know, male filmmaker is was he exploiting his actresses? How much of this was really real? Were there like, you know, prosthetics involved? Yada, yada, yada. And I just feel like that kind of a narrative where nudity equals empowerment and um, artistic, um, you know, intention and whatever doesn't stay, can't stay for very long because the cycle all will all will almost always roll around to, you know, X and Y and Z perspectives on why this is, you know, not okay or problematic or, or whatever. And I think mm-hmm. it's just, it's a very fine line between you know, doing something that is frank about sex and, like, honest in a way that's interesting for adults to watch and reflects, like, human existence and something that's just gross. And, yeah. like, sometimes it's not a fine line. Like, you use the Holly Berry example and, like, the way that that was all a part of its narrative was pretty gross. But yeah. I do think that Love and Other Drugs deserves more credit for doing it, I think, well in a way that doesn't yeah, feel I would exploitive. Agree with that. Yeah. I just had to get in my final note of like I like this movie. <laughs> I know. I, I I I let it I let it linger for you there Chris cuz I don't I don't hate the movie. I it's it, it's a perfect TV movie for me, you know, I think it's totally fine. I don't know. It's a it's I was making dinner when I watched it the other night and it's a perfect movie to come back, you know, from stirring a pot three minutes later and you haven't really missed much of the plot. All right. So you definitely seem like you're you're falling on the Chris side of the the fence because I will be happy to never see this movie again. It really okay. Although I did really irritated me on almost every level. Wait, we also we can't stop talking about this movie without mentioning the worst line i've oh please let it be the one that i wrote down please 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 it must be um where so just for for listeners sake this is at the end of the movie after gyllenhaal and hathaway have broken up and gyllenhaal is sort of leading his sexy single guy life and so he goes to a sex party with his brother and i think hank azaria is also there and a sex party with a, a ton of viagra and there's this cute woman that he was flirting with earlier in the film and she sort of leads him into a room 
with a hot tub where there is a naked Asian woman. And uh, this woman says, she introduces her to Jake Gyllenhaal and she says, she's Thai and I'm Thai curious. Is that? Yeah, it, it is. is that the, it's, exactly, it's exactly what I thought you were going to say. And it's the worst. It's the worst. It's so, so, Awful. so bad. Yeah, and so the, just that very line, you know, prevents me from embracing this movie with both hands. But it's so bad. It's so bad. So that's on my little list of of notes that I jotted down. Um, I also mentioned uh, Gabriel Macht, who plays the rival salesperson. Oh yes, who yes. only ever allowed to play a rival, right? In romantic discourse, he is also better known for people who watch television as other suits from Suits. He is not Suits mm-hmm. on Suits. He is other Suits. So he does have the most perfectly '90s haircut in this. I have to. But say. But I, I wrote down like, is he the male Sienna Miller? In that, like, every time I see him in the movie, damn, I'm like, it's that guy. <laughs> Why do I know that guy? And it's like he could show up in a movie twenty different times, and I'm like, which character is that again? And it's just like, oh right, it's that guy because I can never remember him, even though I should because he's married to Jacinda Barrett in real life, and I support all ex real world turned movie stars. So. I genuinely want nothing but the best for her. But yeah, other suits I can never remember, I have to say. The other weird thing about his character is that he's not only Jake Gyllenhaal's business rival, they also make him Anne Hathaway's ex. For no, for like and reasons so that defy logic. this weird sort of thing where Anne Hathaway, I don't think they meant this, but the, the sort of the subtext of this movie is that Anne Hathaway only hangs out with and dates these guys in this one very specific Medical profession park. Yeah. That, has, yeah. that has nothing to do with her ostensible life is this free-spirited it makes you know, artist no who sense lives in a loft. whatsoever it makes absolutely it makes it seem like you're right that she just like spends her days and nights at this medical park waiting to like talk to medical reps even though it's established very early on that she can't stand the medical community based on her yes. experiences with her illness so she's like she's getting laid it's working out for her just <sighs> Fine. Is it? She figured out a plan and she stuck to it. Jesus. The other thing I wanted to mention was <coughs> at more than one occasion in this movie, the score feels like it's about to break into a Vonda Shepard song a la Ally McBeal. And I, I just it wanted Desiree. it to like just do it and get it over with. Just like stop leading me up to the doorstep. Of, I think we're about to cut to some sort of like cocktail lounge where Vonda Shepard is singing a song. Do it or, or stop with this cue because it's really driving me fucking crazy. Because it comes in like four different times. You know what I'm talking like, about, right? Every time you really just want it to be Desiree's gotta be. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Also that. And it's not. God. Drive me crazy. <laughs> anyway, I hate this movie. Oh, okay. One last thing that drove me crazy about this is I can't. It's a screenwriting tick that people do a lot that they give Anne Hathaway. Where, 
characters who just sort of instantly analyze other characters, <laughs> and that's how you know that they are smart. Oh, that's the big trailer clip in this one, right? Where she's yeah, just like, and I yeah, I really it really bugs me. It feels so lazy and like the worst form of just like telling your audience exactly who someone is. I will have almost certainly clipped that part of the trailer for the intro to this episode, so hopefully our listeners will know what we're talking about. It's the part you're talking about where she's just like, you don't even want sex out of this. You just want like yes. a momentary respite from the pain of being you. And it's just like, oh my God. Yeah. like Because I want the same yes, damn yes, thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lord. Ay, ay, ay. Should we get into the IMDB game? Why don't we? Note? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right, Joe. Speaking of escaping from the pain of being something, (laughs) yes, let's talk about the IMDb game. Uh, Would you like to explain it for our lovely listeners? Sure. It's a game we play every week where we challenge each other to name the four movies that are listed on IMDb under the known for section for a given actor. So ostensibly, what are the four movies that an actor is best known for according to the capricious and whimsical algorithm of the Internet Movie Database? So in occasion where we have three of us, we will go round robin style and each give each other one actor or actress to guess for. You get two wrong guesses until you get a hint. The hint comes in the form of the years of the movies that you have not gotten so far. If you continue to guess wrong, we just sort of start throwing out hints anyway because dead air is not fun. Um, We tend to avoid (laughs) actors or actresses that are heavy in the Harry Potter and Avengers universe because those movies tend to gunk up their known fours, and that's no fun. And we also make a pledge to make it known if any of the known four are... TV roles or voiceover roles because it's just more sporting that way. So I have one selected. Chris and Nate, you each have one selected. What order should we go in, Chris? You being our MC for this episode. Well, let's leave that up to Nate, actually. Nate, would you like to give your... Uh, would you like to guess or would you like to give first? I will give first because I have someone that I think is good uh, and hopefully it's not the same person that you guys have chosen. So I want to call dibs on them. All right. So Joseph, is he giving to you or to me? Yeah, he can give to me. I'll guess. Okay. All right. Okay. So we mentioned Josh Gad earlier in the show. Uh, we didn't talk about that, him a lot, which is good because he was very annoying in this movie. <laughs> yes. But one of his most famous Broadway roles was in the Book of Mormon opposite Andrew Rannells. Okay. Um, so Andrew Reynolds has four IMDb. One of them is television. Okay. Which. Um, All right. So the television has got to be. I don't want to give you any more hints. Yeah. The television has got to be girls, I would imagine. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that's the easy Andrew one. Andrew Reynolds in movies is. Hmm. Is one of them Bachelorette? Yes. Okay. I remember him in that. He's weirdly on the poster of Bachelorette, or at least one of the posters of Bachelorette, where he's... I believe the poster on IMDb, it's his... His silver, his silver shiny underwear in Rebel Wilson's face. Oh, no. In this one, it might be him, but he might be... It's, uh, it's like the back of his arm. I see. And like his, his, his jaw and three-quarters profile. He's a stripper who shows up to the Bachelorette party early on in Bachelorette. Okay. So what other movies... Uh, has Andrew Rannells been in? I feel like he's still he's still at that phase of his career where he's just sort of playing like the friend. Uh, 
What? I looked this up, look and up? this is great. Oh, no. Um, You're never getting this. Okay. <laughs> Are they movies I've seen? You've um, seen this. I think, I mean, uh, I'm, I would be shocked if you hadn't okay. seen them. Yes. Okay. But he's like 20th lead or something like that. Uh, uh, not. No. Wow. Okay. Um. Shit. Are they gay movies? Uh, one, yeah. one, one is kind of is yeah. more. Yeah, one is okay. But what the, the other one is certainly not. It's not not a gay movie. Are you at years yet? Say. Is he at years yet? No, because no, I have. I've only guessed wrong uh, or wrong guesses. Uh, yeah, so I haven't guessed enough wrong. I haven't thought of enough Andrew Rannells movies um, to guess wrong yet. Um, he does have a lot of movies. All right, let's see. Let's see. And only one, and none of these others are are voice. You said right? No, these are both live action. Okay. Um, he's in. Oh, he's in a simple favor as the gay friend. No, that is wrong. That's wrong. Incorrect. Or it's well, he's not. It's not. He's on not. He is in that movie. He is in the movie. Yes. Well, it's that's not two. So give me years. Wasn't that just one? Oh, did I not guess anything else? That was just one. Fuck. <laughs> um. I can only think of him in TV. Bachelorette. Um, oh, isn't he in The Intern? Yes. All right. That's, that's that, one that of them? That is one. Okay. Yes, you've got three. One more. And this is the, this is the hard one. That <laughs> it will be very surprising if you get. I appreciate the spirit of evil with which you have chosen Andrew Rannells. Oh, God. All right. I'm just going to guess... Uh, I'm going to burn a guess on Big Mouth. I know there's not another TV show, but okay, just like, yeah. so, give me a yes. year. So this this movie is 2010. Uh, and do you want another hint yes. that I will? His his uh, character does not is not credited by a name. Oh, great. What is he like? <laughs> gay cater waiter number four or something like that? Something in that vein, Great. Yes. Okay. 2010. So this would have been before Bachelorette. Yes, and before, before girls. girls. And your Jesus. pseudo from your earlier cue, your pseudo gay movie. Yeah. Oh, pseudo gay. Okay, so like, not actual gay characters, but like shit that gay people love. <laughs> kind of, oh, yeah. yeah. Is it something I love or something I don't love? I don't know you to love this, but like, <laughs> I would say that no one loves this movie. Yeah, no one. Yeah. Oh. People people love uh, things that are associated with this movie, but no one loves this movie. Oh my god! Associated. Also, it's not TV, but it's not not TV. Uh, it's Sex in the City two. It's Sex in the City two. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Sex in the City one was two thousand eight. So yeah. Um, yeah. So he played wedding chorus in Sex in the City oh two. Oh my god! I've never seen Sex in the City two, so I wouldn't know. Um, wild. All right. Mine is considerably kinder than that one. Okay, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. That's all right. I'll get you back somehow. Um, but I'm giving to to Christopher. All right. So all right. we mentioned briefly that both Anne Hathaway and Jake Gyllenhaal were nominated for Golden Globes for this movie in the ultra-contentious 2010 Golden Globes, which included 
nominate nominations for we mentioned this when we did our episode on the tourist that angelina and johnny depp were both nominated for the tourist this was the year that depp was nominated twice also for alice in wonderland spacey was nominated for casino jack um it's just a lot of shit on this uh on this ballot but the winner in the best actor category that year was paul giamatti for the movie we've all seen Barney's version. Barney's version. Definitely a movie that exists that we've seen. Barney's version. Oh, so we love Paul. Yes. So Paul Giamatti, star of Barney's version, uh, is your challenge to guess, Chris. Uh, his Oscar nomination, Cinderella Man. Yes, correct. Sideways. Yes, correct. Um. Ugh, I don't like saying this, but The Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> Wrong. Good. Glad about that. Um, ooh. He's in a million movies, and a lot of them are good. There's yeah. no TV, right? No TV. So no John Adams. No John Adams, no Billions. No Billions. Billions. A show that fully exists. That I have never seen. I was going to say, it fully exists, and a lot of people like it, and I know none of them. Yeah. Uh, well, I you know me. Okay, well, then you I know, know one know of me. them. I like Billions. Okay. okay, but I know nothing about Billions, except maybe there's a lot of cocaine. Like, that's all I know about That's billions. what the Billions stands for. It's it for Billions of Cocaine. Show, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How much cocaine would you like today? I'll have Billions, billions please, please, drug yeah. dealer. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm really just buying time. Here. You are. Um, uh, I'm just gonna say the one that comes to my mind, the one that I, one of the ones that I love. Win win. Oh, he's so good in that. That is not right, but uh, oh, he's so win, good win. in that. Win win. You know who wonderful. else is good in that movie is Amy Everyone. Ryan. Yeah. yeah. Amy Ryan, who one day will star in a movie about Kristen Gillibrand, because they are the same person. <laughs> Look at them side by side, and there is no difference. It's wild. Gillibrand is slightly more uh, has slightly more Slytherin coloring. <laughs> that's it's a, a little more of a Malfoy. That's a way of putting it. But you know what? That's why we have makeup artists. So yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amy Was Ryan is Kirsten Gillibrand in the Al Franken story. I don't know. I don't know what we'll do. But okay. Anyway, Chris can. Did I have two? That's two wrong answers. Give me my years. Was it two wrong answers? Yes, it was, because you also guessed yeah, Amazing yeah. Spider-Man. Spider-Man 2. Yeah, so you have 2003 and 2013. 2003 is definitely American Splendor. It absolutely is. Great movie. Um, You said, what was the other year? 2013. Is it? Is it 12 Years a Slave? you got to say it right. It is 12 Years a Slave. 12 Years Slave. Yes, that's correct. That is precisely why you picked this, <laughs> so that we could um, have Goldie Hawn. Wait, who are we shouting again. out? I gotta shout out the right person who gave us, um, who sent that to me. Shit, hold on a second. Buy I'm me gonna some, pull it up. Buy me some time while I look up his uh, his message. Listeners to me. of the recent, um, we uh, I hope I'm saying your name correctly, Matthew. Matthew Ownby, thank you for sending us the footage, uh, the long lost footage of. Goldie Hawn saying 12 years a slave. It truly um, made my week. I have to say. It is the most like it, it feels gross to like laugh about it, but also it's gross to like it's not Goldie Hawn's fault maybe, but like <laughs> right. why did you say it that way? 
Well, also, it's it really know where you are and what you're talking. It draws about. such a fine point of, and this is the thing that I like that the Oscars do, which <gasps> is having people completely unrelated to the movies that are nominated present those movies best picture clips. Because yeah. it's just like I like the idea that like people in Hollywood like movies that they have no professional obligation to like, and that's wonderful. But also, it does lead to sometimes. Goldie Hawn being real fucking chipper about the idea of the American slave uh, trade and history. And yes. So I will also say based off of that footage, if you just listen to it independently, there's something to her head tilt that makes it way more. Yeah. You got to see it. You got to see it. But we have it. It's on our Twitter feed. Thank you, Matthew Ownby. Anyway, Chris, congratulations. Well done. On congratulations. Paul I'm Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I'm actually... Mm, I'm surprised that 12 Years a Slave is not on more people's IMDb game because, like, I just randomly remembered that he was in it just now. And, like, there is a million people in that movie. Yep. A million known people in that movie. Benedict Cumberbatch, Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul, Paul Dano. Dano. Yep. Dano. Adepero Oduya. Yes. Anyway, why don't All you right. give so, to, to Nate? So, uh, Nate, my answer is a little more basic. I went the Edward Zwick route. Uh, Anne Hathaway and Jake Gyllenhaal did not get their Oscars for an Ed Zwick movie. But you know who did? Denzel Washington. Your IMDb game oh. challenge is Denzel Washington. Okay. All right. Um, for the record, I got Andrew Rannells, listeners. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're giving me the, uh, the training wheels. But I... Uh, Will probably also not do very well. Let's see. Oh, um, I may not I mean, have given you training. Weeks, yeah, though. this one's looking more difficult than I thought. Really? Okay. Um, training day. Training day. Yes. Okay. Um, John Q. No, not John no? Q. Okay, but I like that as a random. Uh, guess. Yeah. yeah. John Q is actually a like really popular movie because it actually ma- it's I think it's one of Denzel's highest grocers. I could be wrong about that, but that movie's like on TNT all the time. Or it was um, of a certain era. I'm gonna look up Denzel's That's highest it. grossing movies while you guys do this. Uh, flight? Not flight. Okay, so that's Not two flight. wrong okay. answers. Your uh, years then are 2016, 2010, and 2002. The challenge with Denzel is that he does have so many movies that they could be. Yeah. That is the... Wait, so 2002, 2010, and 2016? Yes. Uh, is 2010 The Book of Eli? The is Book that? of Eli. Nice. Yeah. 20, what was the Denzel 2016 movie? Oh, uh, oh, Fences. Yes, Fences. Fences, okay. And 2002. Uh, this, I will say, with the Book of Eli, I thought was the two more difficult ones. Mm-hmm. John Q is his 17th highest grocer, but that's still pretty good because he you know it's his like movies 70? make money did it make like 70? 71 yeah. 71 million dollars yeah. yeah he only has 600 million dollar movies which i think is interesting because like he has 25 24 movies that made 50 million or more and yet only six made it to 100 so and two of those movies are the equalizer and the equalizer two, which like mm-hmm. do better america like have better yeah. taste in denzel movies 
Oh, the 2002. Oh, what is it? I will give you a hint. He did not just star in this movie. Oh, dear. My mind is going blank. It's not the Dakota Fanning movie? It is not a Dakota Fanning movie. Not okay. It definitely gave us a new movie star in the title character... The actor that played... Oh, Antoine Fisher. Antoine Fisher, nice. starring Derek Luke. Yes. His 37th highest grossing movie. <laughs> Wait, so do you guys yeah, want... All right, guess Washington. guess the other $400 million Denzel movies that are not Equalizer movies. Because it's kind of interesting. Uh, Safe House. Safe House is the outlier. Safe House is the what the fuck of Denzel movies. That, made, that movie made $126 million in 2012. Is the other one... I think we might have talked about this on our um, Courage Under Fire episode. Oh, did we? We might have. So that's how I knew Safe House. Yeah. Safe House. I think you might have quizzed me on this, and I was like, fucking Safe House. Two Guns is Um, his 16th highest. It's 75 million. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Training Day, no? Nope. Training Day is his 15th. American Gangster, though. That's his highest grossing movie. $130 million, American Gangster. Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans, 115. So there is his. You're missing his sixth highest grocer that made a hundred thousand, a hundred million dollars, pretty much even. Mm. But of of the six, that's the earliest one. Is it the Pelican Brief? Yep, it's the Pelican Brief. Yeah. Probably my favorite of those six movies. Easily my favorite of those six movies. It's so good. Anyway, good job on the IMDb game, Nate. Very well done. Thank would you. have taken Thank me a you. long yeah. time to get to the Book of Eli, I will say that. <laughs> uh, I did a story on January movies. I oh, think, nice. Oh, Book of Eli, yeah. so it was, nice. it was yeah. fresh in my mind. Well, thanks for awesome. joining us. This was okay. really super oh, yeah. fun. Yeah, thank you thank so you. much. Um, I guess we could say that that is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Nate, please tell our lovely listeners where they can find more of you. They can find me on Twitter at at KN8. And it's the letter K, the number N, or the... Uh, the letter K, the number N, the numeral eight. I don't know if I need to spell that out. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Joe, would you like to tell our listeners where they can find you if they have not already? I suppose. Um, I'm on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am on Letterboxd. That's the same name, Joe Reed, R-E-I-D. Um, also, I should say, if you are not already following our Twitter account, you should because in the next few weeks – we're gonna have we're gonna give you guys some opportunity to vote on um, some you know movies that we'll be covering on this at Oscar Buzz one in particular. We have so. a big fun project yeah. coming up that we will be slowly teasing out. Yeah, so that get on our social and pay uh, help guide our sales. And I am on Twitter at Chris V File. That's F E I L. Also on Letterbox under the same name. I keep a running this had Oscar Buzz list on there that has IMDb game trivia stats, direct links to episodes. Uh, we would also like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five star review in particular really helps us out with iTunes visibility 
ability, so please, let's trade scarves and maple lattes for the paparazzi of new listeners. Otherwise, we are never, ever getting back together. That's all for this week, and we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye.